I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The Deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply Hey folks, quick note about this episode. This is actually recorded back in December, but due to a series of technical snafus, we're just putting it up now. So if there's anything really outdated in this, just remember this was recorded in December. So thanks. I'm Rob Wolf, and welcome to episode number 44 of Unfermittable, where we take a look at some of the less heralded Mets in our beloved franchise's quirky history. As to us, every player who does, the orange and blue is in their own way unfermittable. Well, these days it's been a pretty slow off-season, and there's really only one topic of choice for Met fans around the world right now, and that is the currently beloved new owner of the Metropolitans, Uncle Stevie Cohen. Mr. Cohen currently seems to this observer to be perhaps the only lovable billionaire on that Forbes list, except maybe for Oprah, I guess. But whether this love affair between Mets fans and their current owner will last likely depends on the team results over the long run. I expect there'll be a longish honeymoon. Met fans are coming off perhaps the worst, most toxic long-term ownership fandom relationship one can possibly imagine with their previous ownership. It might be hard to believe for any Met fans my age or especially younger, since I can at least remember 
when Fred Wilpon had the more likable Nelson Doubleday at his side, advocating for bigger moves like bringing in Mike Piazza. But there was a time long ago when the Mets did have a rather beloved figure at the helm of the nascent organization in the franchise's original owner, the inimitable Ms. Joan Whitney Payson. That's right, folks. No stats today, no war. Uh, Some wins and losses, though, but not looking back at a player, we're going to look back at the incredibly unformidable original owner of our beloved franchise. Joan Whitney was born on February 5th, 1903, in New York City, New York. The Whitney family was old money. We're, we're talking old money. Uh, the family traces back to John Whitney, who arrived in Watertown, Massachusetts from London in 1635, quickly becoming a successful businessman in the colonies, uh, so much so that the Whitney family had a mansion built in Watertown, a uh, mansion known as the Elms, in 1710. And yeah, if you've visited, if you have visited the Whitney Museum in New York City, that was indeed founded by a Whitney, a Whitney by marriage, uh, Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney, but still, suffice it to say that it's a long and august family tree. If you're not uh, someone who's inclined to just eat the rich and loathe them all instinctively, as I feel like I tend to be, but I digress. Uh, young Joan attended both, uh, took some classes at Brown University, but primarily went to Barnard from where, from whence she graduated, and then got married at the age of 21 to Charles Shipman Payson, who was from another distinguished American family line. Uh, their marriage in 1924 was a huge social event, uh, made all the papers, united to old-timey wealthy families. Joan and Charles would have five children, including one who will play a role in our narrative at the end as a very short-term principal owner after Ms. Whit- as Ms. Payson's passing. And Joan, you know, again, there were two rich families, so had her own money and inherited hundreds of millions of dollars upon her father's death in 1927. Um, Aside from her family, her husband and her five children, it's said that Joan had three passions in life, uh, horse racing, the arts, and, of course, baseball. Insofar as horse racing, uh, Joan and her young family, while they spent most of their time in New York City, also spent a lot of time in beautiful Saratoga Springs in upstate New York, uh, where Joan had learned to ride herself as a child, uh, but her and her brother partnered to run the family's very successful Green Tree Stables. Over the years, she won, her her horses run, won numerous races, including two Kentucky Derbies, a Preakness, and four Belmonts. Insofar as arts, uh, that art collecting is something that the Mets' original owner had, or had very much in common with our current, our new owner, as Payson was an incredible patron of the arts, purchasing an immense variety of artwork, uh, generally favoring Impressionist and post-Impressionist works, and didn't limit herself to the hanging or framing variety of gallery art. 
uh, Joan and her brother, in addition to their stable business venture, also got involved in the burgeoning film industry, investing in scripts. Uh, most notably, they won a bidding war for Gone with the Wind for an original investment of $50,000. I also read that she invested in the film The Streetcar Named Desire and A Star is Born. I'm sure perhaps some clunkers too, but when you're doing this research, tend to get the get the hits. But in the long run, you're not here for art and horse racing, really, are you? Um, although, you know, we do love the these quirks about our owners, you know, when we when we puff them up like we are with Mr. Cohen right now. Um, it's and of course it's not hard when you're born wealthy, but as you might be starting to glean from those successful movies and the art investments, Joan was a savvy businesswoman. In addition to her success in horse racing and film, Joan didn't just enjoy baseball as a fan, she invested. In 1950, she bought a single share of stock in the New York Giants. A true Manhattanite, uh, the the Whitney family was. So I guess it makes sense that the that the Manhattan team and the Polo Grounds was her team. But from that initial share in 1950, over the ensuing decade, her stockbroker, M. Donald Grant, who of course also plays a prominent role of his own in Mets history. Uh, accumulated uh, 10% of the giant stock for Payson. And in fact, when Horace Stoneham announced that the Giants would be moving out of New York, uh, Joan tried very hard to convince him to let her buy the Giants and keep them in New York. She was refused in that request, but Joan would not give up on bringing baseball back to New York. Initially, she helped fund a team in a proposed third major league, suggested by New York attorney William Shea, which was to be called the Continental League. Shea had teamed up with Branch Rickey to try and bring about the Continental League, and both of them knew that a team in the bereft New York market, saddled with only the hateful American League, one American League team for New York, travesty that that is, uh, a team in the New York market was a key to the new league, and that Payson, perhaps more than anyone else, had the p- passion to make that happen. So she became a lead investor, along with Grant and a couple of others in this New York team. The Continental League, uh, the the concept of fell apart. If you're interested in this period of baseball, I highly recommend the book Bottom of the Ninth by Michael Shapiro which details the 1950s to 60s era of baseball, and in particular, the Continental League and the teams that spun out of it uh, far better than I possibly could. Uh, Of course, the Astros, the Rangers, the Angels, and our New York Mets owe their formation to the Continental League's insurgent attempt at formation. The biggest part of circumventing and ultimately checkmating the Continental League for Major League Baseball was granting New York and the potential new, one of the potential New York entries in the Continental League a National League franchise. At the time, Warren Giles was president of the National League, and he agreed to the franchise in particular because Mrs. Payson was the majority stockholder and not Branch Rickey and his group, who Giles had a very much of a vendetta against. 
fun story I kind of learned about in preparing for this is that, um, of course, uh, Mrs. Payson had to divest her stock in the Giants in order to own a, a competing franchise. And according to legend, according to a couple of stories I read, she tried a pretty shrewd maneuver and offered, rather than taking the estimated $680,000 payout she was due for her shares in the New York Giants, Payson offered to instead take Willie Mays for her new franchise. The Giants declined. I imagine they knew Mays' worth, even if uh, I I would imagine Mays might not have even earned $680,000 in his entire baseball career, but so it went for players pre-Kurt Flood, I guess. At any rate, unencumbered by partial ownership of another team, Joan Whitney Payson paid an initial $1 million for a controlling interest in the future National League New York franchise to be her team. It would ultimately become our team, I would imagine, if you're listening to this, which just sold for $2.45 billion this year, I believe. And Steve Cohen is currently being lauded for his vision as a sports team owner, as something of a custodian, holding a team in trust for the community and for the fans. And sure, uh, Payson's heirs made an extra fortune of their own that they didn't really need when they sold the Mets. But obviously, $1 million wasn't a lot to you know, a Whitney heiress, but... So what could be more of a labor of love than bringing New York baseball back to the National League, which is really, I think, what what it was about for there. Uh, about a year before their first game, Payson hosted a party to announce the name of the new franchise. A woman of the people, uh, the popular vote determined that the team starting play in 1962 in the National League would be called the New York Metropolitans. According to reports, if Payson herself chose the name, we would all be wearing Meadowlarks jerseys and, I guess, chanting, Let's go, Larks? I guess the syllables work, but doesn't quite have the same ring to it. But on May 8th, 1961, New York City learned that it would soon meet the Mets. Payson's goal uh, was stated to be somewhat similar to Cohen's in that she wanted to be largely a hands-off owner, hiring, you know, baseball people to run the team. But, you know, as I think most owners, she definitely had her opinions and put her imperator on certain decisions. It was said to be her idea to bring in Casey Stengel to manage the ball club because he brought experience. And she supposedly called his wife Edna and asked for her help in securing Stengel services for the Mets. Of course, as the team is getting put together, they leaned heavily on older players, primarily older Giants and Dodgers, in the expansion draft, issuing team building for older faded stars, which you know notoriously had an effect on the team developing, but uh, you know certainly got the team some news and attention. Unlike playing for a team when you can really point to a player's first day in the team's uniform, it doesn't really quite feel the same with ownership. You know, you don't own a team when, when they play their first game, even if the even if the franchise hadn't existed before your ownership. But 
you know, before, you know, before they even take the field, it seems as good a time as any to note that uh, Payson had made some history of her own as she became owner of the new National League Ball Club, becoming the first female owner of a major league ball club who did not inherit a team but used her own money to purchase or buy a club. The first female owner in baseball history was Helene Hathaway Robeson Britton, who in 1911 inherited the St. Louis Cardinals from her father and from her uncle, and ran them for six years before selling. At different times in the 20s and 30s, both the White Sox and the A's passed on via inheritance to women, uh, but perhaps the most notable female owner in baseball before Peyton was Effa Manley, who was the owner of the Newark Eagles in the Negro Leagues in the 1940s. When Mrs. Manley sold the Eagles in 1948, there was a gap in female ownership in baseball not filled until Payson. And since Payson, only Gene Yawkey, Joan Crock, and Marge Schott have been in ownership positions in Major League Baseball. So Payson was indeed unique and pioneering. And as her franchise got ready to take the field and officially become a Major League Baseball team. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. As I suspect most people listening to this would know as Met fans, the Mets, the start of the New York Mets franchise was quite inauspicious. I mean, go figure. Their first game was scheduled for April 10th, delayed for a day due to rain, so on April 11th, 1962, New York National League fans and Mrs. Payson got to see their this franchise that they waited for for years debut against the St. Louis Cardinals, losing 11-4. to One of those old Dodger players, one of those old New Yorkers that they favored bringing on for the team, Gil Hodges would hit the first home run in team history that day and would, of course, play a much more prominent role in Ms. Payson's franchise later on. As I noted, you know, her goal was to be a hands-off owner, and I think the way people expect and hope for, you know, in a non-Steinbrennerian uh, owner-making calls that the GM should really be making kind of way. Uh, but Payson was not an absentee owner by any stretch. While her personality was one, you know, that, you know, that she preferred to stay in her, in the background, her love of baseball meant that she was often found, uh, not just in the owner's box, but she ultimately became a very familiar figure at Shea Stadium, sitting 
in a box to the right of the Mets dugout, generally wearing either a floppy hat or a blue and orange baseball cap. So whether the team's lack of young developing stars in its early days, uh, her unique position as a New York socialite and rare female owner in sport, or some amalgam of all that, it's perhaps not surprising that from the very beginning, the press really sought Peyton out. Pardon me. The press really sought Payson out, and she often obliged in talking with them, and kind of became, I think, along with you know that famous New York baseball finger figure Casey Stengel, a bit of a face of the franchise in the early days, so to speak. There was no David Wright or Jacob Degrom or, of course, Tom Seaver to be a face of the franchise. So. To, to a certain extent, I think it really was Payson in those early days. To Met fans then, she was a congenial, happy owner who chatted with them, waved and signed autographs, you know, really uh, echoing, you know, what we think we're seeing with Steve Cohen today, you know, sh- these days showing up at the season ticket drive, meeting fans. Uh, she was just an important face for the Mets in their early years, and a very key contrast to George Weiss, who was a team president and had that stern, taciturn, you know, Yankee demeanor, and M. Donald Grant, who, you know, always, I don't know, never seemed to appeal to people, I think, even before uh, his Midnight Massacre. So a struggling team without any stars over its first few seasons, so in effect, the owner became a star, uh, or... A notable figure as the team bumbled over its first eight seasons. Uh, took until 1966 for the franchise to finish a season with fewer than 100 losses, and until 1968 for it to finish not in last place as it finished ninth in the 10-team National League. Through all of that, Payson was the team's cheerleader and patron. Uh, when she traveled, she you know she traveled extravagantly, often in a personal Pullman car, uh, but she made certain that the Mets insignia was on just about everything in sight. Uh, when she was out of town and couldn't attend a game, she often sent her chauffeur to the game to sit in her place behind first place, uh, behind first base and send her scorecards after the game. And she was known in Saratoga and in New York socialite locations for carrying a portable radio with her uh, to stay abreast of what was happening with her Metropolitans when she couldn't be there in person. So I guess it goes to show, I mean, just like Uncle Stevie, even if you're rich beyond any concept I can possibly imagine or fathom, you immediately become completely relatable to me if you sincerely live and die with the Mets. I mean, that was me at age 12, just not at a racetrack or at socialite events, but that was me with a Walkman trying to stay abreast of what was happening with the Mets wherever I went, and isn't that kind of what we want from our owners, right? To be fans just like us. To her ballplayers, Payson wasn't just a, you know, obviously wasn't just another fan, but she was actually a very friendly, uh, many of them described her as a very friendly mother-slash-grandmother figure that they missed, felt that she took care of them. Uh, she was known for sending gifts for special occasions like the birth of a child or deaths or marriages and a family. 
Uh, Shilzo is known for rewarding players with small tokens for successes on the field, uh, roses or tickets to a play for a game-winning hit, which uh, actually sounds vaguely, vaguely, vaguely illegal or uh, questionable to me, but I guess perhaps not in the 60s. Um, she hosted parties and trips for the entire ball club, and, you know, hey, at least, you know, in the early 60s, she probably wasn't giving away too many tickets for too many game-winning hits as the victories were few and far between, but in 1969, the fortunes of the franchise, of course, changed drastically. There's a very funny and apocryphal story, I guess, that Payson had never visited the team in the clubhouse, but she chose to do so uh, when the team clinched first, pla- first place in 1969, clinching the division, and the players all had to scramble to get dressed because they were not prepared for Payson's visit. And that would not be the last time she was in the clubhouse that year, because on October 16th of 1969, the Mets shocked the world, became the first expansion team to win the World Series, and while fans poured onto the field at Shea Stadium to celebrate, Joan Payson once again paid that visit to the Mets clubhouse, and you can see her on video seeming to dab a couple of tears from her eyes as she accepted the World Championship trophy from MLB Commissioner Bowie Kuhn. That would, of course, be the peak of Payson's ownership insofar as team success. She did eventually succeed in getting her favorite player of all time in blue and orange, when in 1972 she was instrumental in the Mets acquiring Willie Mays in the twilight of his career. Mays came pretty close to winning another ring as a Met, as the team, of course, came within one game of winning a second World Series title in 1973. Um, unfortunately, Payson herself was also in her twilight as her health began to suffer over the last the 74 and 75 season. On September 28, 1975, the Mets closed out another of their typical mid-70s seasons. They finished just above 500, but not quite in contention with a 5-4 victory over the Phillies. Tom Seaver won his 22nd game in what would be his third Cy Young campaign for the Mets. Mike Schmidt would steal his 29th base, which is something I never thought I would happen, would never thought would happen, and never thought I'd read. He actually finished one stolen base short of a 30-30 season, but the Mets commence uh, cemented with that victory a better than 500 season, closing out the year 82-80. and 80. It would be the last game the team would officially play under Payson's ownership, as she would pass away days after the season ended at the age of 72. As Payson passed on October 4th of 75 in a hospital to which she had donated $8.3 million throughout her lifetime. Between 1962 and 1975, the franchise recorded a record of 978 wins and 1,280 losses. Surely if that's the team's record under Steve Cohen, our current warm feelings will probably turn to mob riots and angry pitchforks. But for bringing New York baseball back to the National League where it belongs, providing a face and a lovely, genteel New York identity to a fledgling franchise, and watching it grow from bumbling to amazing uh, quicker than people would have thought, and for loving the team as a fan in the upper deck did would the whole way, Ms. Payson is remembered very fondly by Met fans. Payson's husband, Charles, would officially take over ownership after her passing and become the team's second owner, 
though he did not share her enthusiasm for the franchise or for baseball, so he delegated his authority to his daughters, the three of them, one of whom, Lorinda de Roulet, assumed the title of team president of the Mets. The uh, Lorinda, they, they basically see, turned control of the baseball matters of the franchise over to Grant M. Donald Grant in 76, and shortly thereafter, contract disputes, uh, most notably with Tom Seaver, but also with Dave Kingman, erupted in 1977, and both of them were famously traded in June 15th of 77 in what was quickly dubbed the Midnight Massacre. Uh, attendance dropped precipitously. It, you know, it was already dropping for the struggling franchise, uh, the point where Shea Stadium was nicknamed Grant's Tomb. So the Paysons did fire Grant after the season, uh, but the you know enthusiasm for the the franchise really bottomed out, as we know, uh, and the lack of enthusiasm there certainly didn't help. And the Paysons, uh, her heirs, decided to divest in January of 1980. Uh, her heirs sold the Mets franchise to the Doubleday Publishing Company for 21.1 million dollars, a record amount at that time. Nelson Doubleday became chairman of the board, and a minority shareholder named Fred Wilpon took on the role of club president. When Payson passed away in October of 75, an article in the New York Times memorializing her life and detailing her passing described her as a merry cherubic woman who, while she lived in royal splendor, did so with a casual air and an almost childlike glee. Uh, which seemed like a lovely way to celebrate her life, and particularly in regards to her glee and enthusiasm for baseball and for the Mets. Um, in addition to her other interests, uh, she was a noted philanthropist, uh, donated a lot of money to hospitals, and she created a foundation to honor her mother that supported biomedical sciences, uh, and again, donated so much money to hospitals. There are several that today still bear her name in various wings. Um, as if she had five children, one of whom died of age at age 20 in World War II. Uh, the three youngest, including Ms. de Roulet, are still alive today. Uh, one, of, one of her sons, uh, after her passing, permanently installed a Joan Whitney Payson collection at the Portland Museum of Art in Portland, Maine. Uh, I think there's also a room in her name, or there was at one point in time at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Um, and for Met fans, of course, perhaps the most fitting uh, tribute is that in 1980, uh, to commemorate the lion-sized role that Ms. Payson played in the franchise, uh, she became one of the first two members of the Mets Hall of Fame, along with Casey Stengel. Uh, I'd like to think it was one of the one of the tributes and honors that would make her happiest, and it was certainly very fitting uh, as a to, as a Met fan. Probably 40 years from now, where someone's commemorating Steve Cohen and the eight championships he brought to our franchise, uh, but until then, there won't be an owner as beloved and as unformidable as Joan Whitney Payson. Thank you for listening to Unformidable. Please go to AmazonAvenue.com for more Mets-related content. You can follow Amazon Avenue on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can find this and all of our Amazon pods wherever you get your podcasts. 
please subscribe and leave a review wherever possible on whatever platform you use. It really helps us out. Original music is by Bunga. I'm on Twitter at WolfRR, W-O-L-F-F-R-R, and the show is at Unformidable. Thank you, happy holidays, and as always, let's go Mets. Thank you.